0: We're coming to the end of Season 4, and we like to reach out to fans of the podcast to ask about uh, what your favorite moments are from Season 4.
1: That's right. If you have a favorite moment, a favorite episode, really a favorite anything that you liked from Season 4, please send us an email at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com.
0: You can also send us a voice recording that we'll try to play in our Season 4 retrospective episode. You know, at the end of every season, we like to go back and look at all the episodes and talk about, you know, where we've come, how we've gotten this far uh, now in season four. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what your favorite moments were, so we can sort of uh, play them back in our retrospective.
1: The first 10 people who write to us or send us a voice recording will receive a postcard from us for free. So record your thoughts or write in. And once again, thank you for listening.
2: movie Prisoner of Zenda. Marvelous film. Classic Selznick. Well, at any rate, I'm gonna be dubbing it into Tlingit.
1: Prisoner of Zenda
2: in Tlingit? Yep. Why? On account Tlingit's a dying language. And I was thinking as how the only people that speak it now are a few old people such as yourself, and, well, after you're gone, then no one will. And that's why I was thinking I want everybody, you and Mrs. Johnson and... Well, especially you, Leston, on account of your professional status and your experience to help me dub the movie. I hope you know what you're signing yourself up for, Ed.
1: You know, dubbing is a really interesting process. I don't know if you know this, Lee, but uh, if you really want to match the dialogue exactly, it's reliant on two things. One, it's the screenwriter slash translator, and two, it's the actor themselves that are delivering the dialogue that the translator is doing right there. So you want to match the flaps that the character on screen are saying. So presumably it's in one language and they're trying to do it to another language and they're trying to match the content of what's being spoken, but also to make sure that like the movement of their mouths are also mirroring what's on screen right there. It's extremely difficult to do with those two criterias. I, I think like the best analogy that I would think is if you were being dropped onto a moving treadmill, so you're going from like zero to 100 immediately because you're just seeing the scene right then and there. And then you're having to like keep pace with the treadmill as soon as you land. So yeah, it's is like all sorts of variables working right there.
0: That's a great analogy. Um, yeah, I can't, it's not the same as just translating, you know, like sometimes you're, when you're reading a translation, like a, a famous book written in another language, like Tolstoy or What's the, um, Cervantes, is that his name? Uh, Mm -hmm. Cervantes. There you go. Uh, You know, you want to find a good translation. You want to preserve the original uh, meaning of the language. But with dubbing, it's not just finding the best analog for what they're saying in one language and bringing it to a new language. It's what you said, too. I guess you also have to match the movements of a mouth, which, you know, languages don't share cadence. They don't share some phrases in one language might... Take a long time to get the point across. And in another language, you might just say a few words. So I always think yeah. about that. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I always think about that whenever I'm reading subtitles and it seems like what the person is saying is a lot more, but the subtitles are pretty short. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like they'll go on like <laughs> a long, like 10 second thing. And then like the subtitles will be like, no, thank you. And it's like, yeah, and I'm like, is I that actually
0: <laughs> getting the intention across? Because sometimes it might, uh, you know, it's like
1: that. Uh, it's like that Fredo mean, where it's like, <laughs> all right, then keep your secrets. <laughs> yeah, all right, then.
0: Uh, I just rewatched the Lord of the Rings, or at least the the first two extended. I, I got to see uh, Return of the King, but sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent. I did want to say um, sometimes a direct translation does not translate meaning, and then on top of that, um, trying to get it to fit with a picture. Has got to be, you know, there's got to be, uh, I think the original meaning has to suffer somewhat. But, you know, if you can get it across through, um, if you can make it believable, close to the lip sync, I think um, the meaning isn't always just in the words. It's in the performance. Yeah. So what you're seeing on screen and the, uh, and the performance in the person's speech, who's, who's dubbing, can go a long way. For meaning.
1: Yeah. That's actually like the only way in which you can transcend the language itself. Cause oftentimes mm. between languages, there is no equivalent between them. So yeah. one word might like it might be hyper-specific to a situation and you can use that word. But then when you get to you try to bring it over to the other side, the other language, there's no way to do it. So your only other option is to use the person to convey uh through that, even though it's not using the words themselves. Hopefully, because it's in a film format, you can get it across. Now, I don't know if Ed is taking into account all of these things, but hopefully, he is.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. I guess uh, you know, meaning might not translate, but uh, but hopefully, feeling and emotion is universal. You know, th- throughout all of humanity. Uh, well, most- hang
1: Hang on, hang <laughs> on. Like what? What are we? What are we even talking about here?
0: We're talking about uh, the TV series Northern Exposure. It ran in the nineties, I believe, uh, nineteen ninety to like ninety five, ninety six. I guess I should just like definitively say, the last episode aired in ninety five. But it ran on CBS and uh, was sort of a a very popular show for the time, but has since been kind of lost to time. It's not really been available for streaming. Uh, ever, Uh, but uh, we've tracked down some DVDs. I believe there's some Blu-rays out there. And uh, the mission statement of this podcast is, well, to overanalyze this show, Northern Exposure, but to also introduce it to a new audience. Every episode, we like to bring on a guest, someone who has never seen the show before, um, or sometimes never even heard of it, and uh, get their opinion on that episode out of context. Now, my name is Lee. I've seen this show A number of times and I'm joined by Charles who Charles this is your first time watching each episode
1: yeah it's my first time looking at every episode with a new lens uh here to provide a little backup right here and yeah this episode which is titled sleeping with the enemy it was directed by Frank Prinzi Prinzi? I'm not entirely too sure how to pronounce it I'm sorry and it's written by Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green
0: yeah, Frank Prinze, Pr- Prinze, Prinze uh, the director, was the cinematographer for a number of episodes of Northern Exposure. And, you know, now, I originally thought he shot every episode. That's obviously not true, as I found out. Um, but I'll try to point out if I notice which episodes he, uh, sh- he shoots. I believe he shot the pilot episode. Actually, no, he did not. The first episode was shot by James Heyman, it says on IMDb. Well, Frank Prinze's name pops up a lot. In this series, at least as I've noticed. (laughs) Uh, But not every episode. Uh, Mitchell Burgess and um, Robin Green, they pop up a lot. Uh, Some of their past episodes, Things Become Extinct, which was from uh, the third season, that has a similar idea. Like in this episode, we talk about languages becoming extinct. Uh, That episode in season three is uh, more about like a dying art. Um, Let's see, they did in this season, The Bad Seed and Gross Point 48230. Oh, and uh, The Big Feast, which we just covered uh, somewhat recently.
1: Oh, okay. So they've had their workaround recently.
0: Yeah. And the original air date for this episode was May 17th, 1993. And uh, I guess we can kind of dive in. Um, The beginning of this episode starts with the theme music and the credits. You know, there's no opening gambit in this episode. Uh, It just kind of uh, starts right in on the music.
1: Yeah, it's another cold cut into the intro right here. We don't have any opening vignettes to really go off of up until we get to the beginning of the episode, which is Maurice visiting Ron and Eric. They're coming back again. They're really popular this season.
0: Yeah, and uh, the last time we saw Ron and Eric, well, it was really just Ron uh, because Eric was... Actually, I still have no clue what Eric, what <laughs> Eric was doing because it's oh, kind of cryptic. Right, right, right. He's like, he's down and... I actually can't, I, let me check my notes because I have it quoted and I still can't figure out what it meant. So that was in the episode, The Big Feast. That was the 21st episode of this season, uh, season four. Ron says that Eric was called away to Frisco that a former friend is trying to sell the Casa to Castro. I have no idea what that means. It's probably a uh, lingo for something. Uh, if, if you're listening and you have, a, have an idea of what it might mean, please write into... Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com or at Northern Overpod on Twitter.
1: Yeah. Immediately Morty's comes in and is that Ron or is that Eric? Uh, for the for the one in the blue robe. Eric, it's Eric. So Eric's the one with the sh- yeah, like shorter hair this episode. So we'll yeah, keep that in mind. Ron is uh
0: is who we've seen before. You know, he's got the beard. He was the one in the big feast. So that that's now helping me separate them because I can think of like, okay, who was the one who was Uh, And he's also, Ron, as we learned, is also uh, I mean, this is show Bible previous to this episode, but he's um, an ex-Marine as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maurice is coming in, and he needs a favor. And it looks like initially, Eric is kind of teasing Ron by saying that he had a change of heart about the Casablanca lilies, but no, it's actually something to do with his son's marriage. Maurice's son. Now, I guess we're going to the flower shop a little bit early (laughs) right here.
3: Welcome to
1: the flower shop. No. First scene. yeah. Here's Here's the strange thing on why they use Casablanca lilies. I don't think they actually knew the meaning of it uh, for flower language, so I'll cut them like a whole lot of slack. (laughs) But Casablanca lilies are white lilies, which are also named shirayuri. So along with the cherry blossom sakura flowers, they are super ubiquitous in Japan to mean lesbian or girl love relationships. And these relationships can be called yuri, hence the last word, shirayuri. And while the white lily can mean long-standing relationships between women, they can also mean a type of uh, relationship called class S relationships. The class S relationships in media feature female-female relationships that are bound to a specific time period of adolescence, often within the isolation of an all-girls school, before both women grow up and graduate to pursue heterosexual relationships. These relationships are framed as a face, not true homosexual tendencies. The problem with these class-S relationships is that they're often repetitive, with no actual development between characters. They're usually fetishized, and they never commit to an actual overt romantic relationship. So, yeah, the white lilies are really, really big visual stand-ins. For that, and like any mention of that, your mind usually immediately go to those types of relationships, or at least the very least, you at least think of lesbian relationships, and you can kind of tie that in in between Ron and Eric in that they're both men that are in a homosexual relationship, but that never really comes up throughout the episode. That's not a strong point of the episode they don't really talk about their relationship with with each other or how like at the time it was taboo or anything like that so it definitely threw me for a loop but then i, I had to stop and think and be like they probably just said casablanca lilies just because it was like a pretty flower to them like they yeah. probably weren't thinking about that <laughs> yes that extremely niche interpretation <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah just something exotic that they could uh pull out but um
1: but uh if we
0: had to put it like you're saying you know uh what is it? Ron is saying, "Oh, I think uh, Maurice didn't appreciate our Casablanca lilies." Um, so it could it could just uh, subtextually say that you know Maurice is um, he he may be friends with Ron and Eric, but does not approve of their homosexuality. Um, whatever the case is, that's not really why Maurice is here. He seeks a translator because uh, Ron, as we discussed. Uh, according to Show Bible, is an ex-marine, and he did uh, he served in uh, Korea. I think he said the DMZ. Mm-hmm. I think it, well, that's what he says in this episode. He was he was in the DMZ, and uh, turns out he picked up a lot of Korean. He can, as we see in this episode, he's like a really good speaker, and he, he's a great translator as well. So Maurice needs a translator because uh, recurring character Duquan. This is like uh, Maurice's son who he never knew he had. Uh, he fathered when, uh, Maurice fathered when he was in, I guess, uh, in the Korean War. And now Duquan has come, is visiting from Seoul, has come to ask for Maurice's approval of marriage between Duquan and his fiance.
1: That brings us to the next scene, which is Shelly and the Brick bringing out some orders for some customers right there. And she meets up with Maggie in what is her only scene this episode, I want to say.
0: Oh, Maggie's only, yeah. Maggie's only scene. Yeah, I think you might be right. I don't think she's in very much of this episode.
1: Yeah. Well, the conversation between the two is just jargon about pregnancy. Shelly's really excited that she's gotten all these catalogs and magazines that's telling her how to survive pregnancy. She's telling Maggie, like, oh, you got to lock down someone. Like, I know that you don't have anyone in your life right now, but you got to go for the preggers gig.
0: <laughs> yeah. Shelly uh, talks about the, like, physiological and physical changes in her body that occur because of pregnancy. Now, I think this is – I feel like this is, like, the third time that Shelly says – my nips are as big as double drop chocolate chip cookies throughout the whole series. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure she's she said that before, right?
1: <laughs> I think Multiple I, times. I don't know if it's specifically chocolate chip cookies, but I know that she has used them as like a simile.
0: Yeah, she's she's referred to as uh that 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 analogy between her nips and and uh, double drop uh, chocolate chips, or in this case chocolate chip cookies. She says anyway. Uh, So we get the idea. You know, last episode, Shelley found out she was pregnant. This episode, they are continuing this a bit. Of course, uh, the baby hasn't popped out yet, so she's in maternity. Like you said, she's got a bunch of maternity magazines. That's sort of the beginning of maybe a Shelley-Holling storyline. What follows right after this is the beginning of perhaps our third, I think maybe third and final uh, storyline. It's Joel and Ed, which we kind of talked about Ed a little bit in our opening soundbite, but... Joel and Ed are sitting, uh, I think, uh, at the table at the at the bar, maybe. And Ed seems to be holding up like an aged piece of paper. And he lets out a sigh. Joel says, uh, what is it? Is it bad news? Ed says, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what it says. It's in Tlingit. Uh, apparently, um, he's got this letter uh, that his Uncle Anku had given it to him. It's like so- something that Uncle Anku's father maybe wrote to him back in the day. And uh, it's just kind of hard to... You know, I think Ed is fascinated by it, but it's hard to pick out the meaning uh, because as we understand throughout this scene, Tlingit is a dying language. Um, in fact, like Ed, Ed has never really conceived of that thought, like Tlingit being a dying language. It's like Joel has to compare it to Yiddish to elucidate Ed, to, to show that like, yeah, languages can go away. Culture can die out as well.
1: Yeah, so immediately we're going to be brought into the theme of language and miscommunication that's going to be running throughout this entire episode. So Ron is playing translator for Maurice and his Korean son and wife. Ed says that he can't read Tlingit. And Joel laments that Yiddish is dying and the culture would disappear. So there is a language barrier that's being done on all three of those plot lines. And I would even argue that Shelley's plot line is also going into language because her magazine is packed full of pregnancy mom language. Interesting. What is uh, what is pregnancy mom language? Uh, I don't really know myself, but I'm assuming that there's like, you know, there's, a, there's like a whole world out there that right. you would really only understand if you were pregnant. Yeah. Like if me and you picked up the magazine, we'd be like, Cool trivia. Like, (laughs) all right.
0: Yeah, like maybe it it speaks uh, best to pregnant
1: mothers. Right. So, yeah, this, it's an interesting theme. I think that it does it pretty well. I want to say the application of this theme is done well. I don't think that the episode itself is done very well, but I'll get more into that as we dive deeper in.
0: Okay. I'll be interested to to hear those thoughts. Um, the last, very last thing in this scene is Ed references the film, um, The Last Mohicans, you know, in reference to like sort of a dying culture. The Last Mohicans came out in 1992, so very topical uh, for this episode, which came out in '93. And uh we referenced the title uh you know last episode when you were trying to guess what the uh what the subject of this episode would be. Uh the title of the episode Sleeping with the Enemy is uh I'm assuming it's referencing the I want to say 1991 film Sleeping with the Enemy. Yeah, it's 91. I haven't seen the movie Sleeping with the Enemy from 1991. I don't think it's uh, at all similar in plot to this episode. I think they're just uh they're just piggybacking on the the, the title, and uh, assumingly this was a big box office success. So, seeing that title, you know, it's a it's a popular title,
1: right? Well, we're down to our three paths. Which one should we take? Should we go with Maurice and his Korean son Ed in the Tlingit language, or Shelley and Hauling?
0: Let's start with Maurice and his son Duquan. That's like the the very first scene in the episode, and of course, you know the action is intercut. So it's all throughout the episode, intercut with the other plot lines. But uh, the episode does begin with this idea that Duquan is coming to visit. So if we follow that plot line, Duquan arrives with Sune. Uh, Pak Sune, I think is her full name. And mm-hmm. uh, we also get Ron's last name, Ron Bance, Bantz, B-A-N-T-Z. Uh, he, he's introduced as the translator. Maurice says, this is Ron Bantz. Pak Sunay brings a gift. Which uh, oh we actually do see I think later what's inside that box It's like some Korean candies. Did you get a good th- this is not in this scene. It's like later when Maurice yeah. is sitting down did you did you get a good look at those candies?
1: No I, I couldn't get a good look at them. Uh, did you?
0: I think it it reminded me of like mochi maybe but it's obviously in this episode it looks like it's more rectangular in shape. Um, but mochi is like a Japanese treat that's made of I guess uh, sort of like uh, pounded rice. Um, so it's kind of chewy, um, and maybe gelatin, maybe not exactly gelatinous, but it could be filled with, um, with something inside of it. Now I was trying to look up if there is a sort of a Korean analog to mochi. There's something called chap probably saying that really bad, <laughs> but there is maybe a, there's an analog to that. I can't tell if that's what Maurice is eating, but that would have been my guess.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good guess right there. Uh, along with another food-related item, whenever Maurice is trying to treat his guest, he says that he got a lot of that diet cherry soda.
0: Oh, that, yeah, that DeQuan likes yeah. or something.
1: Uh, I'm not too sure which one it is, but I had I learned about this brand of soda uh, a few weeks ago. It's called Cheerwine. Oh, yeah. If you're from North Carolina. You would really know what this stuff is. But <laughs> it's like a hyper-specific local soda brand. Yeah, And, yeah, it's... Uh,
0: it's cherry flavored, right?
1: Cherry flavored super eponymous with cherry right there. I don't think that's the one Maurice got him <laughs> since they're all the way in Alaska, but hey, maybe they did.
0: Yeah, maybe Maurice like somehow, I don't know how he would have been introduced to it, but I mean he definitely has the means and the money to import cheer wine if it were <laughs> uh, to get to Alaska. Actually, cheer wine, I I've had some. I was introduced to it by our friend Jay on the podcast. Now, I think in in the last episode that Jay was on, it was like with Jay and Daniel. I mentioned that we were all Louisiana natives. That was a bit of a lie. I mean, of course, we met Jay when we were really young. He moved to Louisiana at a young age, but he grew up in North Carolina. Uh, from you know, when he was a baby, he was born there, I, I think. But before he was in Louisiana, he was in North Carolina, and he brought cheer wine along with him. So I got to try that uh, cheer wine. It's pretty good. <laughs>
1: So Marie sits down with his guest, and I think we have a sound clip that's going to show this. So, you two are going
4: to get married, huh? Yes, yes. You packed your Samsonites, uh, laid out a couple of grand for plane fare, and uh, hauled yourself halfway around the world just to ask for your old man's blessing. Is that about it?
2: Blessing? Yes, blessing.
4: From where I sit, she looks fine. She looks pretty good. She's, uh... Got a few curves for a, an Asiatic. Got uh, tiny feet. She's quiet. I like that. I would have picked uh, a younger one if it had been me. Of course, uh, I guess neither one of you are, are spring chickens, huh? <laughs> Both of you getting kind of long in the tooth. Well, okay, she looks fine. Permission granted.
0: Yeah, as you can hear in that soundbite, uh, Ron doing the translation, He's, I think he's a pretty great speaker. And as we see throughout the episode, he does a pretty good job. Uh I don't I can't tell if the actor who plays Ron actually speaks Korean or if he's just acting but um it, it appears like he's a pretty pretty fluent speaker but Maurice on the other hand is pretty nonchalant about this all uh he's kind of surprised that Duquan would go through the all this trouble just to fly and get permission uh so I think actually in the first scene um, Maurice is maybe a little suspicious that Duquan maybe is flying all this way cuz he needs like uh, he needs uh, uh, more, mu- like more money for wedding expenses or dowry or something. Um, but as we see after this soundbite, uh really, he just wants permission. But then I guess there's something we haven't talked about in the soundbite is Maurice is judging um, Sune on her physical qualities and <laughs> kind of, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in true uh, Maurice fashion, he's obviously being highly sexist, bigoted, uh, terrible you know, any any one <laughs> of those, you just take your pick right there. Uh What was really surprising to me is that he's surprised that Duquan would fly from South Korea all the way to Sicily, Alaska to ask for his blessing. Because Maurice looks like a person that's really old fashioned and adheres to tradition. So he took a really cynical view and said like, oh, he's only here to like ask for more money. But later in the episode, he starts harping about you know sticking with your principles being true to your values right there which would go hand in hand of saying respecting your traditions but yeah maybe you know you can have two different schools of thought coincide within your mind so he's got that and he's also super (laughs) jaded
0: yeah uh i see what you're saying like uh it shouldn't surprise maurice that duquan is like steadfast and he just he's simply going uh for this permission because that is like uh Sort of traditional, sticking to your um your your traditions, and that should be something that Maurice understands because he is a person who sticks to his traditions and his beliefs. Uh, so something that seems like you could just do over the phone or over mail, uh, you know, this has a lot of importance. So you you stand by that importance. Uh, so you know, Maurice should understand that Duquan really just thinks this is a very important moment. But yeah, it also did confuse me in this uh, at the beginning of this episode that Maurice, uh, this whole track of Maurice being suspicious that, um, well, really Maurice being so nonchalant about this whole thing, just being like, yeah, of course, uh, of course, my son can marry whoever he wants. I felt that maybe deep down inside of Maurice, he had some sort of conflict with this, but he wasn't um, he wasn't able to admit it openly, so he deflected. By saying uh, maybe he just wants to come here and ask me for some more money, like I'm—he deflected with suspicion, but maybe he felt something deep down that he hadn't addressed subconsciously, uh, and it was starting to bubble up. But as it turns out, I don't think—I think honestly, I do think that Maurice was just very, uh, you know, willing to give permission to his son. He was happy that his son has found a wife, and maybe he will be a grandfather soon. You know, it's not until later. When uh when problems really develop, it's not from inside of Maurice, but from new knowledge that Maurice gets that will be a problem. So um, I was a little like at the beginning of the episode, I had some predictions for where what might be happening, but it's uh it's actually all outside of Maurice, um, though it does connect to his past. I guess uh I guess we're gonna get there. Maybe we should uh we should move ahead. To the next scene.
1: Yeah. I I had actually thought, going back to the White Lilies, Mm. that I knew there was going to be a problem. Oh, okay. So, I thought I was like, oh, maybe, like, his wife isn't actually heterosexual. Yeah. But then that's not actually the problem, as we see in the next scene, which involves Ron and Maurice. Ron steps into his place. Maurice is offering him this, uh, what appears to be mochi, like you were saying. He says, you know, it's not like Hershey bars with almonds, but they're good. (laughs) But... Ron drops some unfortunate news for Maurice. He says that Pak Sun Ye is actually the daughter of the butcher of Yangdok.
0: Yeah, I believe the butcher of Yangdok. I believe that title is um, is fictional, but of course Yangdok is a is an actual place. Pak Sun Ye is the name of uh, that they give this colonel uh, in North Korea who's given the title the butcher of Yangdok. So this this colonel Pak Sun Ye you know, because of his military position, would be an enemy of Maurice, uh, who fought in the Korean War. But, you know, we'll understand as this plotline develops, uh, it's not simply just the title or the position in the military that Pak Sun Ye held, uh, but it is actually quite personal. Like, <laughs> between Maurice and uh, this this uh, butcher of Yangdok, who had kind of a personal effect on Maurice's life or at least on some soldiers that Maurice uh, you know served with.
1: Yeah, he initially doesn't believe Ron's claim, but you know, the seed has been planted. He's already uncomfortable with that knowledge, and we're going to see him confront his son and his wife to be with that knowledge in the next scene. So in this scene, Maurice is wearing like a traditional dressing from South Korea right there. Uh, they even got like a little table set up that they're going to kneel down on instead of sitting in chairs. They're going to be drinking soju, which is a traditional liquor in South Korea. It's uh, usually made of rice, wheat, barley, or potatoes. And yeah, uh, I thought it was really interesting that like Maurice is stepping into the world of Duquan and his wife, all without the language. So he's got everything but that when he is talking with them in this scene. Yeah,
0: like he's experiencing the culture. He's communicating, you know, even without language, they're trying to communicate um, these ideas of where did you come from, this and that. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, their language is separated from from them here. Maurice, you know, becoming more suspicious now of Sune, the fiance, uh, asks her where she's from. Uh, She says, Wansan, "Wansan?" I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it which I just looked up, is in North Korea. Maurice is um, very curious to see of Sunae's allegiances to the North. I think he mistakenly says that soju is what they drink uh, or it's from North Korea. Uh, I'm not sure where soju was uh, first invented, but um, according to Wikipedia, it says that most brands, at least today, are made in South Korea. So it's uh, it seems to be more of a South Korean drink, but I'm sure they drink it in North Korea as well. Um, but he links Soju to North Korea and also suspects Sunei of liking um, what he calls the Northern Red music. So like he starts maybe singing the uh, some communist anthem of North Korea and uh, just kind of he gets really angry and excuses himself.
1: Yeah, like you said, I thought it was really strange that he connected Soju with North <laughs> Korea because Soju can definitely come from South Korea. Yeah, it could be either. Have you ever had Soju before?
0: Um, I have, yeah. I think I've had it a couple times, and I don't know that I could say I'm a connoisseur or that I've I've had really a good taste for it. Um, it's quite expensive compared to like sake or something, though. You can get some expensive sakes. I just I feel like the the soju that I found in stores is maybe a little more expensive. Maybe it has something to do with imports, but um, it did sort of remind me of sake in a way. But yeah, okay. I think it has a higher.
1: Does it have a higher? Alcohol content? 22.6, I want to say. Okay. I just I just spouted that off the top of my head (laughs) because I think I saw that number. Okay. (laughs) Let me find it. Okay. It can totally vary from 16.8% to 53% alcohol by value.
0: There you go. Okay. And I'm sure sake might also vary, but I, I I think of sake as closer to a wine uh in its in its alcohol content. But um what about you? You've had some soju?
1: Yeah, I've had it a couple times as well. Um it's all right. I mean, you'll get the job done. <laughs> I thought what was really interesting is that Maurice calls it fire water right there. <laughs> and I, I don't know why. To me, that's like super offensive. And why? <laughs> I, I think it's because it's channeling the thought that what you're drinking is really barbaric because oh, you would yeah. prescribe that to what the Native Americans were drinking. And Back in the day, we just we had extremely bigoted views toward them. We'd be like, oh, whatever they're doing is like savage. So they would just lay down everything that they're doing. But you would never call like, I don't know, like a Budweiser beer. You would be like, oh, it's firewater right there. It's like, no, it's just a beer, it's just an alcoholic beverage. Just, they they drink that in other cultures.
0: Yeah, I feel like firewater, the meaning uh the word firewater denotes a meaning that's uh First in it's like my a pejorative. head, yeah, yeah. First in my head, it would be like Everclear or something like highly alcoholic. But then at the same time, it could also mean just like junk, like moonshine, you know. So, and I think soju, especially like if they're bringing it from Korea, from South Korea, you know, they would be bringing this somewhat, you know, valuable bottle uh, that you know they probably want to bring a nice bottle for Maurice to enjoy. So, yeah, that is kind of offensive that he would just write off this gift. Uh, this preparation of soju as uh, you know what i said is uh, like a moonshine or just some junk that you drink to to get you buzzed
1: yeah you would never call like <laughs> a scotch whiskey firewater like it just wouldn't happen <laughs> even though like there are some really crappy like 3 dollar ones from gas stations
0: <laughs> yeah that's true well let's move on to the next uh, the next scene with duquan and uh sune and maurice yeah um Actually, in the plot line uh, next, it's just a scene with Maurice and Chris. It's like uh, Chris has just wrapped up a session at K-Bear, steps out of the uh, the booth and walks into Maurice's office and is like, hey, let me buy you a beer back at the brick. Uh, Maurice seems to be a little downtrodden. He's looking at old war photos. I think he says like from 1951. It's like a photo of him and all of the soldiers, his buddies that he served with. And um, he mentions a specific one. I think Woody is what he calls him. It's like one of, one of the best soldiers he served with. Woody's plane went down uh, and he broke his leg and he was, I believe he was captured as a POW. And uh, he had to march something like 27 miles on one leg. But at a certain point, he just couldn't keep up, obviously, because he's got a broken leg. So they shot him, they killed him. We learn in this scene that Duquan's fiance. Suné, of course, is the daughter of uh, this butcher of Yangdok, Pak Ye, I believe, was the commandant of a POW camp. Uh, he was apparently a master of physical and psychological torture, uh, but this was the person who tortured and imprisoned uh, American soldiers and Maurice's friends. It's a very tricky feeling, I guess, that Maurice is going through, and we're going to really be able to dive into that because there's a lot of scenes or there's a few more scenes coming up where he's struggling. But um, we expect Chris to offer some philosophical insight here. But Chris really, I don't think Chris can help much. He says it's pretty heavy. And Chris, I think, has to excuse himself anyway. I don't, I don't think Chris has much to offer.
1: Yeah. Chris doesn't really give him much to land on right here. And that scene only really, it's just like exposition scene to show like, uh, let me explain why I don't, you know, I don't like this man right here. Uh, It's going to carry forward into the next scene where we can really see it come to a climax because he has Ron over and he wants to talk with Duquan by himself. And between the three of them, you're seeing a scene where Maurice is speaking, then Ron is having to translate, and then Duquan has to react right there. And what's happening is like, it's awkward because you're just, He's telling him, he's like, I'm going to have to rescind my permission because this man was a murderer. Like her father killed a lot of my men. And Duquan respects Maurice's wish. He says like, I won't marry her.
0: Yeah. And just to call back something you mentioned in that in one of those earlier scenes when Maurice is like sharing this scene with Duquan and Sune, they're drinking the tea and, and language is sort of separate. Um, obviously there's translation going on in this scene, but if you just remove all the... The, the language and just look at the way the actors are performing like you're saying like how each uh, character has to do their own uh, bit in this scene uh, Ron is very solemn when he's translating and we'll find out if we haven't I, I didn't really glean it until a bit later but Ron equally has a strong distaste for Sune's father and in fact will congratulate uh, Maurice later saying like you did the right thing rescinding the offer of marriage I, I expected Ron to be maybe a little more empathetic with Duquan, but uh, but it, it's in this scene where Maurice, even though he's rescinding the permission, we can see in his performance, uh, and in some of his words, maybe I can't remember if he says it in this scene, that it's like, you know, basically it breaks my heart that I have to do this. I don't want to like crush your hopes and dreams and your happiness, but uh, I got to rescind the offer. And then of course, Duquan having his hopes and dreams crushed, but also having to show respect to his father. So If you were to watch the scene on mute, you could still get a lot just from the the emotions going on for each separate character.
1: Right. What was really interesting to me in the scene is that Maurice says that he would hate to go back on his word, but he has to rescind the offer. Mm. So already he's going back uh, on these principles that he's going to talk about in the very next scene. But you said something really interesting. Ron was the one saying like, oh, you did the right thing. Yeah. You would think that they would share the same values. Like Ron is also of the opinion that Maurice should not give his blessing because, you know, it's just not something that uh, a Marine should do. Like th- these right. are mortal enemies right here. Yet he is fine with the breaking of this particular promise. This. uh Oh, yeah. Th- yeah. It's. Almost hypocritical. And it's going to make more sense if I elaborate onto the next scene, which is where we find Maurice drinking alone in the brick with just Dave tending to him. And he's kind of just musing to himself in this entire scene, saying that like, how is this my fault? Like, I didn't ask him to fly all the way over here and bring his personal problems with me. And why doesn't he act like an American kid? Like, why doesn't he just like rebel against me? Why does he have to obey me? It freaks me out that he does that. So again, we're seeing like a dichotomy between cultural differences and miscommunication between how Maurice perceives how an American would react and how a South Korean would react in this episode.
0: Yeah, and I believe uh, towards the end of that monologue, Maurice says um, that he must follow his principles. He says, when you draw a line in the sand, that's where you have to take a stand. So, you know, we're bringing up these ideas of principles. And the fact that Duquan doesn't rebel shows that he has like principles and respect for his family, his father. Um, But it's just all too surprising. And I like that we see Maurice is struggling so much with this because we get the sense that. Maurice uh, is following his principles, but not following like his heart. And there's a strong divide there we'll find throughout this episode. And in the conclusion of this storyline where there's two different outcomes, if you were to follow your principles or follow your heart for Maurice. And um, yeah, also just talking about the the setting of the scene, as you said, Dave is the only person tending to him there. He's like closing down, you know, putting the, the chairs on top of tables as Maurice is uh, sitting alone with his drink and he's monologuing, but Dave is, uh, you know, he's definitely talking to Dave and Dave will reply here and there. But I do like how the camera sort of wraps around this whole uh, area where, where Maurice is like sitting sort of in the center at this lone table. And there's some like cutting back and forth between Maurice and Dave, but there is, uh, there sure is a lot of movement around Maurice and then later pushing into Maurice uh, towards the end of the scene which I like.
1: Yeah. It makes a static scene look a little bit more dynamic with those camera movements. Brings us immediately to the next scene, which is a very strangely shot in an open field yeah. uh, next to a forest. Maurice is by himself with his car and Ron and Eric pull up in their own car. W- what makes it odd is that, I don't know, Maurice told them he was there or <laughs> they f- happened to stumble <laughs> upon him in this empty field. It's like literally like an like, you couldn't see someone for like miles. So I, I don't know why or how they even found Maurice right here.
0: Yeah, it's like they would have to, because they say, hey, we just came to check on you, is what uh, Ron and Eric say. But um, I, I don't think they could have found Maurice. Like they, if they were coming to check on Maurice, like there's no way they would have found him. They would have just had to been like driving somewhere and been like, oh, look, that's Maurice. Let's go. Let's stop and go talk to him. Because he, he, as you're saying, he looks like he's in the middle of nowhere right now. Uh, which looks beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually, I wonder if there's even a reason to shoot this scene here other than to look pretty.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, well, for me, the very first image of this scene, as you described, it's Maurice out in a field with his car. It just really um, broadcasts the idea that Maurice is like, he's at like a crossroads. He doesn't know what to do. He's just like needs the air. He needs the space to think. Uh, so, he, you know, I, if I see someone out in the middle of a field standing outside their car, I think they're like doing some thinking. So um, that's true. So visually, it sets up that idea uh, for me in in the first wide. This is the scene where Ron tells Maurice that he did the right thing, he did what he had to do. And uh, Maurice acted like a Marine, did the job right. He did the dirty work that needed to be done. And he's like, That's what Marines do. You know, it was hard for you to crush the hopes and dreams of your son, but, you know, this is what Marines have to do. And Eric says, Life goes on. Trust me on this. So er- Ron and Eric seem to feel pretty good about this, uh, though Maurice is still very muddled, I think, by the end of the scene.
1: Yeah, I always think it's very funny whenever people give this advice, where they're like, oh, life goes on, man. They always <laughs> act like such drama queens whenever they get heartbroken. But they, he says that in the comfort of his own relationship with Eric. So right. it's like, all right, well, let, let's flip the table. What happens if, like, in one second – he leaves you. Like, how are you going to feel? You want someone to say those words to you? Like, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> just a little connection between here. Uh, Ron is saying that they just got some mint condition Marion Lewis 78s right there. Let me make sure it's a red wine. I'm pretty sure. I thought I Googled it. Actually, it's not even a real thing.
0: Oh, what is it? Oh, the what he just said is not real. The 78s?
1: Yeah, which is not a real wine right there. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry,
0: sorry, sorry. It's not, uh, he's talking about records, 78 inch, uh, 78 RPM records.
1: Wait, is he? He drops them in, in the middle of a conversation with food. Yeah. That's Cause they so were weird. talking about food. They're
0: like, come over. We're going to have some, we're going to do like this, that they invite what? Maurice. Uh, oh, go ahead. Marion Lewis isn't a real thing though. Oh, Marion Lewis isn't even a thing. Yeah. And I even just checked Marion Lewis, like spelled the other way, L O U I S just to make sure if like the subtitles had it wrong. And, and I don't see anything about a musician by that. Name. Uh interesting. Well, yeah, either way, I guess. If they're talking about uh 78 RPM record or whatever, uh, which is a very old um manufacturer of like that, that's the old old RPM, I guess, uh record. Or if they're talking about a the year of a vintage, Marion Lewis or Lewis Marion is not a real thing, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, I took that to mean it just to show that they're like, we're going, we're we're having fun and partying, like they're happy you know it's like well, we want to invite you to this party Maurice is still like he can't he's not able to like step back into just like a social life and 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 having fun he's in his thoughts right now and definitely struggling with uh with what's going on in his life but okay the next time we see Maurice is i want to say with uh, uh when Duquan and Sune are leaving right
1: Yeah, he's here to send them off before they leave, and this is where he finally gives in and gives them his permission. He says that even though he feels that it is immoral and weak, he is going to allow them to marry, which I'm not, like, entirely too sure if, if that's, like, the right words to characterize this, because it's not like she personally went and psychologically and physically tortured his men. I get that they're related by blood, but she has no bearing on that whatsoever. I don't see how this is like immoral. I can kind of understand his justification for weak because he's confining himself to his own values and not living up to them. Sure, that's your own standards that you're setting up. And if you fail to live up to them, you can call yourself quote unquote weak. But immoral is like, I, I don't see how this is, Maybe it's a moral in his words
0: also. You know, there's something I, I just realized. I don't think this episode necessarily answers a big question. It it does solve the problem by looking at it in another way. You know, Maurice decides with his heart, I would say, that he chooses his son, uh, not just his son, but these this young couple. He wants them to be happy over the conflicts of his past, Maurice's past, like with uh with this um Korean leader. But one of the real conundrums and dilemmas of this episode I think is really big is to me the idea that in a way like can you forget or forgive uh, something like this? Um, I guess the way to put it is that obviously I think Charles we can say that Sune had nothing to do with what her father had done. Like the sins of the father uh, are carrying down to Sune uh, you know, in Maurice's perspective. Like he can't Forgive her for something that her father did. You know, you have to really try to put yourself in Maurice's shoes and think this man, her father, was so evil. You know, can that be forgiven? And I think the answer is obviously that, you know, Sune is their own person. And if anything, this is a chance to correct the uh, perhaps evilness, atrocities of her bloodline with this marriage, you know, with this happiness and love. Um, but I don't think that's ever really solved for Maurice. I think uh, the episode itself is more about I, I don't know, do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying? Like, I don't think Maurice yeah. ever reconciles with uh, this idea of Sune being disconnected from her
1: father. Yeah, they never really reconcile And if anything, they sh- seem to be showing that, like, what he's saying, at least in terms of the character, is that he doesn't like ever come to that realization because we see it in the next scene, which is really amplified. Oh yeah, where Ron and Eric, mostly Ron, is bullying him. They say like, <laughs> I, I used to, you know, I despised you, but I used to think of you as like a comrade in arms. At least you had like the rank and the values that came with that rank. But then, you know, who are you now? Like I don't respect you at all. And Maurice, instead of like shrugging them off and being like, I know what I did. I feel right in my heart am content, he he kind of agrees with them. He says like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to know where things used to fit in the the grand scheme of life, but now I don't know anything. And it's like, he's, he's agreeing to what they're saying, being like, I shouldn't have given in to do that. But like, again, like, I don't think that uh, the, the sins of the father should be passed down to the child right there.
0: Yeah. Maurice could have just said, look, Sune is a different person from her father. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming that Suné didn't know her father very well, or if she did, uh, despised him. Hopefully, um, but Maurice could have said that. Instead, uh, it just seems that Maurice is like, um, I've decided to uh, to follow my heart, even if it outweighs my principles. You know, which is also a great lesson. But I think the idea of this, like this war criminal's daughter, that is, um, that's pretty powerful. Uh, of a situation as well that I think, uh, I think in the end, Maurice just gets bullied over it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I get what they're trying to say, but like, are the principles themselves being aligned with positive values right there? Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. saying like, I understand the, uh, the conflict that's happening within his inner self being like, Oh, you know, everyone's got to have a set of values that you have to adhere to. If you don't have that, you might as well be like a hyena or something. But (laughs) is the principle itself, something that you should be following. So he's essentially saying like, all right, if your bloodline commits this, you're shunned like entirely right there.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not a great principle to have either. But anyway, you know, Maurice, uh, he feels defeated in this episode though. I think everyone watching can agree that he did the right thing. And hauling uh, offers him, he's like, I think we both need a drink. So it ends with hauling uh, pouring them some drinks. But um, I did want to touch on the previous scene. Uh, Maurice, you know, he does grant the permission for marriage. And, of course, Duquan and Sunae are overjoyed. And uh, Sunae gives sort of a closing uh, farewell address, like a closing statement to Maurice, you know, thanking him. And uh, it's not subtitled. And if you put the subtitles on, it just says, like, um, you know, speaking Korean. So I was really curious to try to find a translation for this moment. Um, and I searched, uh, you know, Reddit and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, unfortunately, at the time of recording this, Charles, I did not get a response. But earlier today, Charles, I was asking you about it. Did you know anyone who speaks Korean or could translate this? Uh, you just suggested the uh, just playing the clip into my Google Translate app. And I'm pretty sure that like 100% worked. Like I think <laughs> I'm pretty surprised that I just played this clip And it was able to tell me exactly what was said. Uh, So I've got it translated here. I'll just read the direct translation. This is what uh, Sune says to Maurice right before they leave. Thank you so much. I understand how difficult the decision you made. I'll be really nice to your son. Yeah, pretty short and sweet. I guess we understood that without, uh, again, I don't think we need the translation uh, to really feel the power of this scene. And in a way, without the translation, perhaps it's even more powerful, you know? Because we can ascribe yeah. to it the emotions that we see on Sune's face. Uh, I was right, just, purely, right. just purely curious. In fact, I, I kind of feel bad now that I translated it. It was, it was better <laughs> when I did it. You ruined the magic. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, it is a sweet resolution in that they are able to transcend the barriers that language and culture are placing upon these two individuals. Yeah. And Maurice is able to come to the other side of it. But, like, I'm still not a fan of how this plot line ended in this manner. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's why I have kind of a negative outlook onto this. But that's not, like, the only plot line that I'm also disappointed in. Uh, It's not, like, I'm majorly disappointed. I just think that uh, maybe it could have resolved itself in a different manner. But anyway, that's way, that's the ending for Maurice and Duquan.
0: Yeah, I guess I can agree with you that perhaps it might be an unsatisfactory ending. Uh, I do th- really enjoy the emotions and feelings Maurice and Duquan and Sune, Ron and Eric. I really do like this plotline a lot. I guess the way it resolved, we've already talked about it, how it's kind of a little strange that... It leaves one of the biggest problems unanswered or perhaps like comes at it at a, in a different angle. And Maurice is like a a loser for some reason in the end where we feel like he, he may have won, uh, or made the right choice. Yeah. The ending, eh, but plotline overall, I I, I think I really enjoyed, but, um, Let's see, the other plot line that you think maybe terminates improperly or not in the best way, do you want to begin
1: that one? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about Shelley and Holling right here. So let's rewind the tape. Let's go all the way back. Where Holling is meeting with Joel, and he's got a serious conundrum, according to him. He is not being satisfied on his needs.
0: Yeah, he says that he is stymied. Uh, basically, he says that he's not having enough sex. <laughs> he says that he averages four times a day, though more during the winter freeze. And of course, Joel has to say, like, that's not even average for uh, like a teenager. That would be, like, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, Hauling has to say, uh, you know, he's heard that like back in the day, they used to mix in saltpeter. And Joel's like, saltpeter, sodium nitrate? It's like, yeah, they used to mix it in with like the food. And, and that would like decrease the libido. Um, Of course, Joel has to say that's an old wives' tale. I would assume Joel's right. I don't don't think that actually lowers your libido. What else? Holling suggests, you know, I've taken ice baths, midnight jogs. I even stood in the walk-in cooler for like half an hour. Nothing's going to work. You know, he's like backed up in a way. And uh, I think Joel says, you know, he's not going to prescribe him anything. He's like, you know, first you just got to talk this over with Shelly. Make sure she understands that. You know your your body is telling you something, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean Joel comes in with the obvious doctor prescription of communication. He's like, "Why don't <laughs> you stop relying on your body and rely on your mind? Like, why don't you use your mouth for something? So why don't you just communicate with Shali? And Holly kind of also doesn't understand that he's saying like, "Oh, you mean like I should go overstep like, my boundaries force with myself
0: her? on her, or something?" Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he then
1: Joel's like. No, like, just go talk to her. So already, you can see like, there's miscommunication between Joel and Holling right here.
0: And then apparently, yeah, he's not like communicating well to to Shelley as well. In the next scene, Holling is um, trying to express and explain this to Shelley as she's getting ready for bed. You know, I guess the the this is probably uh, one of the typical you know one of the four times of day typically that they would. Uh, get it on you know they're getting ready for bed so he's got to express his needs to her and I've actually got a soundbite here where he kind of like conveys it through a story
4: you remember that time I told you about when I was stranded out on that island in Lake Whidbey? Mm-hmm. Uh, my kayak had uh, loose from its mooring and drifted out and far away
2: and you almost froze your tush off but the matches dried out and you strangled a moose and made jerky
4: my only way back to shore was ice floe to ice flow the threat of hypothermia, a mere misstep away.
2: But you made it back.
4: Yes, and do you know why?
2: Because you
1: are one rugged L.L. Beanstalk.
4: True, but see, Shelly, I didn't want to leave that island. Not right then. I was forced to.
1: Forced?
2: By who? Grizzlies?
4: It was my needs. You what? My needs. Your needs? My needs, my wants, my desires. Oh. My needs welled up within me. And once they got started, there was no way to stop them. They were like a, a thirst that, that needed to be quenched, a hunger that needed to be fed. My needs needed to find a proper refuge. And they wouldn't quit until they did.
2: Your needs?
4: Yes, my needs. Shelly, my god, I'm, th- I'm talking about my needs. I am talking about Johnny. Johnny? It was Johnny that forced me off of that island. It was Johnny that needed a woman, bad. And he didn't care if I died or not. I mean, if he didn't find her, I was just gonna bust.
2: Wow. So you swam in frozen water and walked through snow all for Johnny? That is a great story, hon. I think I'll go take an Epsom soak. My ankles are
1: killing me, and my roids are acting up on me, too.
0: Sorry, that was kind of a long soundbite, uh, but I really love like the performance in there by both by Holling and Shelley. How Holling is uh, desperately trying to get this across to Shelley, and how she's enjoying the story. And then is like, "Great story, babe. I'm I'm gonna go take a bath now." <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Once again, we can see that they're not really connecting with each other. They're not seeing like Shelley can't understand the moral of the story right there, yeah. uh, and Holling is failing to translate this story into a theme to her yeah yeah i think the scene just demonstrates that like hauling is just an individual that has a very high libido it's almost like he has two separate beings within him like you have hauling regular and you have like hauling johnny because <laughs> he, he, he himself calls himself by that manner he says like it wasn't me it was Johnny that did it. It was another being, an external force <laughs> that had forced me to do this.
0: I, yeah, I was going to say, I love how Holling was, when he's telling the story, is like, you know, I would have loved to stay on that island. Like, I didn't want to leave the island. Like, I needed to. But I also hate how, like, the show Bible has now created this Johnny character. Like, Johnny is Holling's penis. That's, that's in the show Bible now. I think we talked about this on a past episode where it was in the big feast where Shelly is. Like worried about, um, you know, she's got to like fake a bottle of wine, and she's like, "Oh, they're gonna figure this out, and and you know, once they do, like, I'll never see Johnny again." And we were like, "What is what is she talking about? Johnny? Is that like Johnny Carson? Is that? I think it might have been Jay who brought this up, but later, um JC wrote to us in saying that the Johnny that they're referring to there." Is Hauling's penis, which obviously at this point, that's show Bible. So that's got to be <laughs> what she was talking about.
1: I don't, yeah, we should have connected that because <laughs> yeah. that definitely is like a common term <laughs> for it.
0: Um, but yeah, th- that's the term that they're going to keep using apparently. Like it's it's not going away.
1: Anyway, <laughs> we get to the next scene where Hauling is with Chris at the brick Chris actually orders one chili con carne side of garlic toast with lots of Tabasco sauce to give it some kick.
0: Yeah, Holling keeps like dabbing on the Tabasco sauce, uh, probably a little uh, too much. Holling is like a bit overattentive at work, and Chris can can see this. Holling has to explain himself. He says, you know, like Shelly's got a bun in the oven, and she's wanted to stop uh, doing the, um, as he terms it, the lamb bang boo, which I've never heard of that before, but I, <laughs> I love it.
1: Yeah, Chris is familiar with the situation since he's been in the slammer. He's uh, seen other men that have been in similar situations. And he suggests going into Eastern practices instead of uh, stuff found in the West. He wants to go into the tantrics from Hinduism.
0: Yeah, he talks about a less goal-oriented Approach to sex, not about just uh, climax and consummation, but some, some, this like tantric sex idea. Uh, he says sexual connection on a spiritual level, which is, it's the next scene, right? Uh, yeah. This is like a wild scene that I found quite ridiculous, but I also really, I, I for some reason really like this. So let me explain why. So, what's happening is, um, Holling and Shelley are laying down in bed. And uh, they're like being guided by Chris. He's walking them through tantric sex, which seems to be a very intimate thing. I don't know why you'd want Chris there to guide you through sex, but uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's how tantric sex works. I don't think so. But anyway, that's what we're getting here. I've seen this episode before. I totally forgot that this has ever happened in Northern Exposure. I don't know if I blacked it out of my memory, but I just have to like smile and- applaud this. This is such a wild idea. It's, it's amazing that this was playing on TV in 1993, not because it was like taboo or I guess it is, but it's, it's not even that offensive or explicit, definitely not explicit, but just imagine changing channels and then coming to this scene. <laughs> so odd. Cause they're like laying there. They're also like chanting and humming and it, it doesn't seem like very, awkward they're just like more like confused about what's going on what chris is doing it's it's definitely played for comedy but it's just wild to me
1: <laughs> yeah i don't even think chris knows what he's doing either <laughs> because it looks like all three of them are in a state of misunderstanding chris is i don't think he understands how that that uh that thing he's reading from i don't, yeah. I don't think he's like properly translating it right there which goes into the theme of miscommunication there you go and again holly and Shelley aren't uh, in union right there.
0: Yeah, they're like, they're not fully connecting. It's not working. Um, you're right. It is funny that Chris is sort of like reading from some text as if it's like an um, instruction manual. You know, they're trying to follow the steps. And he's like, uh, how are you, Holly, how are you doing? Are you getting off yet? Like, is this working? <laughs> and they're just like, I'm not sure. You, know, you can see it on their faces that they're, they don't really get, get what's going on here.
1: And that brings us to the next scene where Shelly is serving Joel. She gives him um, I believe it's just like a plain bowl of uh, oatmeal. It's like absolutely nothing in it.
0: Yeah, I think she says no cream, no sugar, no fun or something. And then Joel says no heart attack.
1: <laughs> you <know?
0: laughs> but, you know, Shelly is clearly depressed or something here.
1: I like that because it, in a way, if we're talking about sets of values, Joel is kind of living up to that. Because like Joel himself as a doctor, he knows how nutrition works. He knows of like all the terrible uh, sludge that will be pumping through your system. So he's like, I don't want any of that. Just the baseline essential, very healthy oatmeal right here. So I like that he sticks with his gun right there. And in this scene, Joel was a little bit concerned with Shelly saying like, "Uh, are you all right? Do you have like a little morning sickness, nauseous? And Shelly reveals to him that like, no, she's just in a frump because of the pregnancy. She didn't realize that it came with these side effects right there. And Joel uses an analogy of a fern. He says like, when you have a fern, you got to take care of it. You got to provide it sunshine. You got to let it, uh, be in a safe environment and it needs, and Shelly says like potting. And Joel has to say water. It needs water. Otherwise it shrivels up and dies. And, Shelly kind of repeats the phrase, like, water, water. Got it. But I don't think that message is really getting through with her. Number one, (laughs) she didn't even understand that you had the water in it. And number two, even when revealed the answer, it doesn't seem like it's still going through her. It seems like it's going in one ear and out the other. Again, showcasing that, like, maybe she doesn't truly understand what Joel is saying.
0: Well, uh, I don't know if I agree, but real fast, um, the side effects that Shelly is um, concerned about is that her sexuality is... is, um, dormant, as Joel puts it. It's like, yeah, you know, um, you feel like, you know, your sexuality is dormant and he has to bring up the fern analogy. And uh, I think she does understand. I think uh, what Joel is obviously saying here is um, that sex doesn't have to always be a craving. You know, Shelley doesn't crave sex right now, but uh, sometimes it maybe perhaps is like watering a plant, like maintenance, like you have to do it to maintain a healthy relationship. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a sex counselor or a marriage counselor, but uh, I think perhaps this is some good advice. At least it would please Holling. You know, if he's really so backed up, uh, I, you know, I don't know. The, I don't know the proper solution of what should happen here. But uh, regardless, I, I don't know. I do think that Shelley hopefully gets the analogy. Like, I'm I'm starting to starting to backtrack and be like, did did she not get it? <laughs> uh, but I think she understands. I, at least well, I, was, I understand. at least I think the audience gets it that water here is meant to be sex.
1: Yeah, we as audience members can understand <laughs> that. But I was just going with the theme of like everyone misunderstanding everyone in this episode. <laughs> so like maybe that was something that was done right there. Uh because to strengthen my argument, if their plot line ends essentially yeah, right here. That's right. We see it one more time where we have discussed Maurice being at the bar and Holling saying, like, you know, we could both use a drink right here. But we don't really see a true resolution between them. We don't know if Shelley actually went ahead with the advice and decided to help Holling.
0: Yeah, I think uh, from the ending where Holling's like, "We could both use a drink," it might suggest that Holling still hasn't gotten sexual satisfaction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that is, I think you could totally read it that way, as if like maybe Shelley still is lost in translation here, or lost in communication, miscommunication. But I don't know. I think uh, a more pleasing. Ending, which also I have to submit, maybe is uh, just my own interpretation, and it might not actually be like what is actually happening. But uh, w- what satisfies me about an ending here is that hopefully Shelley does understand this analogy, uh, because otherwise it's just a, it's just a happy ending for Joel. Like he's got this great analogy that doesn't help Shelley or Hauling if uh, if they can't communicate it, which is uh, which is what you're pointing out.
1: Yeah. So once again, I think the application of the theme is doing all right. Two sides not able to see the same thing. But I I do wish they would have had a more concrete resolution unless that was the point of it, was to leave us, the audience member, as leaving us in a state of ambiguity.
0: Yeah. Like at least, I I think you're right. At least if this was supposed to have a pleasing ending for Shelley and like we should have seen one more scene with them together.
1: All right, that brings us to the final plotline, which is involving Ed and Leston. So, coming from the sound clip we posted at the beginning of the episode, Ed is approaching Leston and his friends playing checkers. Ed has an idea. He wants to do the movie Prisoner of Zenda in Tlingit. He wants to do a full-on dubbing with it with the assistance of all of those playing checkers and more.
0: Yeah, it's just as we heard in the opening soundbite, except uh, we get a little bit more about this Leston character. Uh, I think the character's name is Leston Havens. It's played by uh, the actor Ned Romero. Uh, Apparently he was, you know, a famous actor back in the day, or sorry, not famous, but he was an actor back in the day and starred in a lot of Westerns. This is how... Ed gets the idea of getting him because he says, obviously, from that soundbite, he says you're you're sort of professional background, but also just all these uh, elders of the tribe who are kind of the only people who know how to speak Tlingit. So they'll be um, a great cast for this dubbing. Uh, I wanted to point out Prisoner of Zenda. There's a lot of different versions of this uh, as a movie. And I believe the one uh, that they're dubbing is the the version from 1937 because. uh, Leston mentions, oh yeah, I love that film. It's a marvelous film, classic Selznick. David O. Selznick was the producer of this uh, Prisoner of Zenda' from 1937, but he's also a very famous producer known for, uh, probably most known for winning the Academy Award uh, for Best Picture with Gone with the Wind. He produced Gone with the Wind. Uh, He produced A Star is Born, Rebecca, uh, let's see, A Tale of Two Cities, David Copperfield, just some, some lists of films that he produced that were um, nominated or won awards. So a very prolific producer.
1: Okay, so we got some heavy hitters in his repertoire right there.
0: Yeah, I think it's cool that Ed is trying to preserve Tlingit. And I'd just like to point out that Ed has tried a number of times to immortalize and catalog things through film. We talked about... Uh, Things Become Extinct, which was also written by the same writers of this episode, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, where he's trying to preserve this ancient art of, I believe it's duck flutes, right? He's like someone who uh, handcrafts these duck flutes. Uh, So he's making a documentary to uh, showcase this dying art. And then uh, I can recall another episode with Mike Monroe, where Ed thinks he's going to preserve or save the world or or, or do this uh, some, something by like cataloging every fruit and plant that Mike grows like they're you know it's, it's like Mike is like showing a tomato that he's grown to the camera.
1: Yeah it seems that Ed has an idea of wanting to preserve a snapshot of his time in Sicily. We can see it in that documentary series that he was making of the town where he was just going through it. Oh and yeah Just seeing too. everyday ordinary life right here. Ed has a strong cultural tie to where he came from right right and
0: uh, also in this scene we uh, get sort of a a forewarning from leston he says uh you know like loop lines looping lines like re-recording overdubbing dialogue can be very challenging and unforgiving he he mentions a movie called cheyenne autumn uh, which is a real movie he says carol baker one of the stars turned into a sack of tears I guess, you know, they don't go into it too much, but the idea is you have to, like, keep re-recording and re-recording, and we talked about it up front, Charles, how difficult it is. You said you related it to, like, falling onto a moving treadmill. It could be a real workout, a real challenge, but Ed says, you know, that's why I wanted your help, because you're, like, an old pro, and Leston says, you're right. So maybe this will work out, but maybe there will be some problems.
1: (laughs) Well, there's going to be some problems, because we're going to (laughs) cut to the next scene where Ed's got everything set up. He's got the audio equipment. He's got the people on the table with the script. And he's got a little TV screen showing what's happening. So they're dubbing over exactly what's happening on the scene. And in this particular scene, Ed is saying like, all right, everyone else, you guys take a look at the other pages. Get prepared for the next scene. Leston, I got one more thing for you. We got like a scene with just you coming off the balcony with this princess character. And we're going to work together. We're going to see how well we can nail this scene. The scene plays out, and Leston is, even without us understanding the words of Tlingit, we as an audience member can feel the phonetic sounds of uh, impatience and frustration that's coming from Leston, even though we don't know what he's saying. And the scene is supposed to be like something where a character is marveling at the beauty and presence of this princess, and how happy he is that it's just worth it just to be with her. And Ed is saying, "Like Lustin, can you do one more take with a little less edge in your voice? You know, just to see how it goes." And Leston takes offense to that because. To an actor, a director coming down and feeding lines to them is a huge insult. It's saying like, you don't even respect my craft. You don't respect my vision of how to carry it out. It's like you're trying to spoon feed me, a grown adult, on how to do something basic like eating.
0: Yeah, not just a grown adult. He he lists his credits uh, in front of Ed and he even challenges Ed, calls him like an amateur. Uh, you know, he says it feels like maybe Ed is giving him some bad direction. Uh, and he says, you know, uh, uh, what does he say? He says, I'm out of here, chigliak, and just kind of <laughs> like makes a very bombastic exit.
1: But Ed is right. Yeah,
0: you know, I do think Ed is right. Yeah, I think, uh, as you said, like we can tell, it's kind of a very harsh, guttural performance in a way. I don't know if that's just how Tlingit sounds, or it really does feel like Lester is kind of, Leston, I should say, is leaning into uh, probably the wrong the wrong type of performance, uh, and I can understand, as we just said, like uh, as Leston said, you know, like looping lines can be really trying. It can be really hard to do that all day, and it feels like they've been working all day at this point. So I can understand Leston's frustration, but uh you know ed ed's not the one doing all this looping, but it's important to have Ed there so that he can catch things like this and and try to find uh, the right nuance in these performances, but I guess to play devil's advocate, there is a bit of give and take, you know, like there's, you've got to let the actors perform uh, and you can only do so much to try to guide them. But obviously uh, it's not working out right now. There's a, uh, there's some difficulty.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have to let them have their own range, but up to a certain limit because he's changing the entire dynamic of the scene, which is supposed to be. The opposite of being angry and frustrated right there. Like the point of dubbing is not to create your own piece of art. Like if you were trying to direct a movie based on a book or vice versa, those I understand because you're trying to adapt something into a totally different medium. It's done by a different person as well. You might as well be creating like a new piece of art right there. Which is why I don't get so angry whenever a movie adaptation strays from the book or vice versa or some other medium that's transcending to another medium. But in this particular case with dubbing, you are trying to preserve the original intent however way you can, as close as possible right here. You know, we talked about the difficulties of it before, but it really is, now that I think about it, like something that's really unique because Whenever you're creating it for the first time, let's say it was being made in English and you're you're the one creating it for the first time, you have full creative control of how you want the scene to go. If you want it to be done done this way, you can, I guess, like as long as the director goes along with you. So then you just record your lines and then they put it into the character's mouth, bada bing, bada boom, that's how the scene is. But if you're dubbing it, you're like looking at a mirror of a mirror and you got (laughs) to follow along really well. Right there, So I think Ed is like entirely in the right where he's saying like, no, preservation of the original meaning, just like the preservation of the language of Tlingit, it's very precise and you should keep with the original flavor.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think you said that very well. I think, yeah, you've got to, there's not really wiggle room for your own interpretation or your own performance. You really want to try to do justice to the work there. You're just trying to, to revitalize or, you know, to translate what you saw. Uh, as um, directly as possible. Now there is, this is completely different, but there is overdubbing that happens sometimes in films where the intent is replaced. Like maybe there is a performance that was given and the director or whoever producers don't like the way they said this or the feeling they had behind it. So they will ask the actor to kind of redo it. And uh, sometimes it works. You know, it's, you can't, you can't really do this all the time because obviously, if your face is emoting one feeling, and your uh, your words and your speech is emoting another, it's not going to match up. But if you can't see your face, if it's like from behind their back, or if it's like a uh, some some audio that comes in before like the picture really surfaces, uh, you can really add in whatever you want and kind of shape the thing. You'll see a lot in TV and movies where like you see like the outside establishing shot of a building. And you hear the beginning of the dialogue. It's like, all right, so this is what we're going to, you know, like it's someone who like sets up the scene, but it's just the dialogue you hear and the establishing shot. And then we cut into the scene. That I feel like a lot of times people will ADR just like the, to make a quick transition. If they didn't shoot it, they'll grab someone to just do a quick transitional line to help tie it together or something like that.
1: That reminds me of this, uh, this, this like television show. It was like an anime called, uh, ghost stories, Oh yeah, sorry, yeah. That's from like 2000 to 2001, (laughs) I want to say. And the story behind it is that uh, when it was being translated to America, the production company who owned it, Animax, said like, hey, uh, you guys can do whatever you want The only rules is that, like... It wasn't very
0: popular. The show was, like, was not (laughs) well-received, so they were, like, they kind of abandoned it in a way. They are like, whatever, we will just give it to you, right?
1: Yeah, and they were like, just don't change, like, the character names and make sure to, like, the core meaning of each episode is still intact, but, like, otherwise do whatever you want. So, like, they significantly changed each scene with the (laughs) the dub. So while it would be, like, a scary (laughs) scene, they are just dub over with, like... Absolutely ridiculous dialogue that would never fly. I've so. seen
0: I've seen a couple <laughs> episodes of that, and it is very hilarious. Like a lot of it too is like um, they'll just add in dialogue that's like whispered. So it's like you know when a character is on screen but they're not talking, and it's like they're talking under their breath. Uh, so they just add in complete lines that <laughs> have nothing to do with like what they're saying, but just a lot of like sexual jokes and just like running jokes where it's like that clearly couldn't be what this show was about. Like, they're, like, really overriding <laughs> whatever is happening, and it's just very playful in how they're kind of steering this this ship of a show, like, all off course with, with their overtubs. It's hilarious.
1: <laughs> all right, that brings us to a scene with Joel and Ed. Joel's not getting a lot of focus in this episode, but this particular scene was really well done with Joel, in my opinion. So Ed sneaks in. Kind of surprises him, which is uh very funny because I think just last episode or like two episodes ago, he was very, very respectful on the door. He knew where like boundaries came in and like how to knock on them, but not in this episode. He just barges in. He's like, hey, Joel, I just wanted to ask you a question.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really like this scene too. And, and I think it's really an interesting uh quandary that an artist finds themselves in. Uh Let me play the soundbite and we can discuss.
2: Okay, now, if you're going to do a thing, then you should do it right or not at all, right?
1: Well, yeah, that's what they say anyway.
2: Okay, now, on the other hand, if you don't do a thing just because you don't want to not do it right, well, then it just doesn't get done, right?
0: Well, I suppose. Here we go. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting quandary, and albeit... Ed is not doing the. Uh, he's not, not not communicating in the best way. It's kind of hard to follow his train of thought, but the idea essentially is sort of the problem of perfectionism. You know, it's like if you're if you endeavor to do this work of art, you should give it your best and make it the best it can be. However, if you can't get your best, does that mean you just need to abandon that project? If you if you are always such a perfectionist, you know, perhaps you'll never finish anything.
1: Yeah, I guess this is where deadlines come in. (laughs) (laughs) Always like the bane and or the solution to an artist's dilemma right there. It doesn't seem like Ed is operating on that. Uh, That reminded me of an expression from uh, Parks and Recreation. I think one of the characters, uh, Ron Swanson, said like, don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, You know, and it's specifically for Ed here is this prisoner of Zinda dilemma. You know, uh, should he just let less than do whatever he wants and at least have the film and tling it. Like, if it's about the language, maybe I should just let that happen. But, you know, I think the real solution would be to make this dub enjoyable so that people would actually watch it, you know, if it's like such a bad dub.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, kind of an elegant solution that he comes with. So, All the things that I was saying before, I'm still standing by it, but if your direction of your vision as an artist is leaning toward this direction, then what Ed is doing is going to be correct. So what Ed does is that he decides to kind of compromise with Leston, and he compromises because he hears a story from Joel about his uncle Stanley and how he would used to tell the story about Pocahontas, but he would transcribe it using Yiddish terms and terminologies and uh, the way that they approach life. So Pocahontas, originally a tale involving Native Americans and the Europeans that came over, was now being changed almost like not entirely, but like some of the context was being changed a little bit by implementing Yiddish terminologies. So the story is no longer 100% Pocahontas in its original form. It has now changed due to the implementation of other cultural values right there. And the thing that differs on this compared to what I had said previously about trying to preserve the original is that in this particular case, they were just trying to pass down their cultural values and bring it to the next generation. They weren't trying to create a whole new art piece. Primarily for the purpose of art. And I think that's when Ed realized that too. He was like, wait a second, I'm not doing this for art. I'm doing this so I can preserve my culture. Yeah. So with that in mind, I have a little bit more leeway. Like I don't have to adhere strictly to a 100% interpretation of the original. I can use a little bit of Tlingit along with Prisoner of Zenda's original stuff and merge it together to create a new thing and then pass that on.
0: Yeah, it's like, perhaps I shouldn't be such a perfectionist and I should really align myself with like what my core value, my core goal for this whole endeavor was to preserve Tlingit. So I'm going to do my best to put that first perhaps or, or at least make some compromises. Um, but I love this story, the Yiddish Pocahontas, which we hear is a Pocayenta Pocayenta is like the Yiddish form of Pocahontas <laughs> and her brother... Uh, because <laughs> it's supposed to be Geronimo or something. Uh, I have the soundbite. Um, but yeah, to set it up, he's he wants to, Joel wants to tell Ed this story. He's like, uh, gone through all of his, uh, old things in some box. Cause he's like, remember how we were talking about Yiddish and Twingit? Like, I found this old story that my, as you said, my like uh, relative used to tell. And, uh, I think, <laughs> I don't think this is in the soundbite. So I'll say it real fast. Uh, Joel is, um, starting to tell it all to Ed. you know, the whole Pocayenta, Joronovitz. Uh, and Joel's just like, can't contain his laughter. He's like, you know, it's, it's like, it's funny. You get it, right? It's like, it's, it just, it sounds funny. The sounds of it is what make it so enjoyable. And there we get the idea. It's like the language is what makes it so great. And that could apply to, you know, the Tlingit is what makes it so great or what will make, uh, this dub so great is that it's it's in Talinga and that's so crazy to hear, you know, so exciting to hear maybe. But I do want to share the story cuz I think it is also funny. I'll I'll play the uh, the whole idea of this uh Pocahontas story.
2: So what happened? Joranovitz got a buffalo.
4: No. Now, you see what happens is the first buffalo this had it had fafelta pelts, right
0: Fafelta pelts, which is uh, it's mangy, and the second buffalo was was so ugly, it was
4: so he couldn't even look at it, he had to send it off, right? The third buffalo was perfect. it was beautiful, it was, he could taste that tozimus and he goes
2: and he goes to kill it, and he realizes he can't he can't kill the buffalo, he has to send it away. Why? As he realizes he brought the milch
0: tomahawk. What kind of tomahawk? The milch which is, you see, kosher Jews, they can't cut meat with the same knife that they use for dairy. So he realized that he brought the milch tomahawk, the milk tomahawk, so he couldn't kill the,
4: the meat with it.
2: So the moral of the story is that if he had used the tomahawk anyway, even though it was the wrong tomahawk, then at least he would
4: have had a buffalo.
1: No, Ed, there's no, it's no moral. It's not. There's no.
4: No, it's it's a it's a funny story. You know, it's just it's just it's funny that. You had a question for me?
2: No, I think he answered it. Thank you,
4: Dr. Fleischmann.
0: So yeah, maybe Ed draws the wrong moral from this, but it, it helps him come to his solution. But um, I do think it's hilarious the idea that, well, the the whole milk tomahawk thing. Uh you know to I guess to keep kosher you're not supposed to eat uh milk uh dairy or cheese with meat you're not supposed to eat them together and it goes so far as you're not supposed to use the same like utensils to mix these you know you can't use the the meat knife to spread butter things like that um which is true and I think it's um I think it's interesting my grandparents are they keep kosher uh even though they're like sort of reform jews uh they try to keep kosher and i do remember i wasn't present it was my brother who had to help them with it but they were either getting a bunch of new silverware or they're trying to transition what was their like dairy silverware they were they wanted to start using it for meat uh, it was either like a transition or a brand new stock but they had to uh, to to uphold i guess this religious tradition you have to bring these and uh, wash them in a river, like flowing water. And that will help you transition either milk from meat, or maybe it's like in a way of, uh, I guess you couldn't say christening because this is Jewish, but in a way of like, uh, you know, tampering these utensils so they would be ready for, for dairy or for meat. Uh, I just thought that was pretty fascinating.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> I think that's such a neat tradition right there. Because like, <laughs> yeah. uh, rivers symbolically mean like uh, the passage of time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a thought machine of sorts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but and then also, you can't deny that Yiddish can sound pretty funny, at least the way Joel is performing it, uh, Rob Morrow here. Uh, good performance. It's a, It's a funny story.
1: All right, so we're gonna get the reconciliation scene between Ed and Leston. Leston is out in the river fishing. Uh it's a great shot. It's wide. You see Leston just with his rod right there. And Ed comes in and says, like, basically, like, how are you doing? Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, Ed is uh he's come there first to compliment Leston. And uh I think it's funny because uh I think Ed... Uh, misattributes a performance to Leston and Leston's like, no, that wasn't me. That was this other guy. But uh, no, Ed, Ed knows his stuff because Ed does go on and listing other performances that actually was Leston and it uh, goes into great detail. Something like, um, I think he mentions like, uh, like there's a scene where Leston, uh, is this the scene where it talks about Leston like crying? Is that this Yeah. yeah okay. He says like, oh,
1: yeah, he says that, like, there was a pivotal scene in which Leston said that, like, he decided to add a tear to the shot to show more humanity in the character, and Leston thought that he gave the picture a whole nother dimension right there. So, he's trying to tell Ed that, like, the actor's input also elevates to work. They're not just, like, cattle to be used.
0: Yeah, film is a collaborative art, and the actor... Has a large role in that. And then in this case, Leston was also sort of functioning as a writer in a way, or just adding, uh, adding more context with this tier. But I want to play sort of uh, the remainder of this scene, sort of the ending of how this scene comes about when uh, Ed asks Leston to come back to Prisoner of Zenda.
2: Sure wish you'd come back, Leston. To Zenda? I don't think it's a good idea, Ed. Oh, but it is, than It really is. It won't be the same as before, I promise. I won't be near as bossy. You won't even know I'm there. Well, an actor needs a little feedback now and again.
0: And I think that's really great. I think there's some great performances all around. I like how Ed is really leaning into. I think it's a good idea. I think it really is a good idea. Um, because if you think about it, like, Really boil it down. What we're trying to do is preserve Tlingit in some way. And I think that's that's a good endeavor to 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 go after. And uh, also when Leston says, uh, what's his last line? He says, an actor needs feedback every now and again. Uh, before he says that, he like gives Ed a really long look. And I, I really like that performance. To me, it's almost showing that, you know, Leston is seeing that. Maybe Ed is taking the wrong lesson from this encounter. Like, Leston doesn't want Ed to think that a director should just be absent and let the actor make every performance decision. You know, Leston did just say that an actor can bring a lot to the table and to the story with their performance. And, you know, film is collaborative, uh, but maybe he's, he's agreeing to come back to Zenda because uh, he doesn't want Ed to become a director that doesn't uh, collaborate with an actor. And just like sits back the whole time.
1: Yeah, I think that Leston is trying to say that like, you know what? Maybe you were right. Mm-hmm. Like, I needed that pushback to demonstrate that like that scene shouldn't have been read that way. Like, even though I have good ideas sometimes, like that, that wasn't a right call.
0: Yeah. And in the end, Leston uh maybe celebrating the actor, but I, I like to think, you know, it may be unspoken, but I like to think that he um he also celebrates the the collaboration aspect and he wants Ed to be a director who can. Who can give feedback from time to time.
1: It all culminates into the final scene of the episode where we see a large number of them gathered around in the living room. Marilyn is here. It's like our first time in the episode right there. Wow. Uh, surrounded by older people and yeah. also children. Oh yeah, there's like a lot was, of kids. Go ahead, go ahead. I was confused about a little bit. I, <laughs> I can understand an angle of it if it's going in this direction, but... Ed had mentioned that Tlingit was a language that was only spoken by the elders, and once they passed away, the language would basically be dissolved. But the movie is entirely in Tlingit, and these children are watching it Seemingly also understanding it. So, <laughs> in a realistic viewpoint, you would say, like, this is nonsense. How are these children understanding this? But in the context of the show, they're trying to say that, like, maybe language isn't just spoken words. Maybe there's something that transcends them. So, like, even though the children don't exactly know what they're saying, they can kind of get the um the gist, they can get the subtext that Leston is saying earlier that Edith had, had accused him of lacking of maybe. Everyone can understand what Ed and Lesson, all the others are collaborating on and trying to create for the village.
0: Yeah. And I think it also falls in line with the idea that, you know, learning a language and translating a language and speaking a language is about the text, is about the words. That's the job of these elders to translate and perform. And then it's also about the emotion, the expression of the words. And that's what Ed who is also pretty unfamiliar with Tlingit, but hopefully a little more familiar with uh, film expression. It's his job, he sees now, to aid in that half of language, to help take those translations and shape those performances to make something that is understandable uh, for someone who maybe is trying to learn Tlingit. Also, I mean, it is also just the image of uh, Tlingit being a dying language that is only spoken by the elders is now being introduced to the youth. And so that's how we're going to preserve it. So we got the young kids there as well.
1: Right. I also want to point out that like, just like how in Joel's story with his uncle Stanley, that they had formed their own meaning with the story of Pocahontas, so are probably the children in here. They're probably forming their own meaning of what the prisoner of Zenda is, even though it might not align 100% to what the original interpretation was. But because they're watching it with their own language that they don't even understand, they're probably coming out with like maybe a little bit of an askew interpretation and they're just going to pass that interpretation down.
0: Yeah. Sort of a synthesis of ideas here. I also want to point out, yeah, Marilyn's there, you said. Marilyn's mom is there. We get to see Marilyn's mom and uh, Ruth Ann is also there. Uh, I don't think Ruth Ann speaks Tlingit, but uh, I think <laughs> it's just the, you know, it's. I don't think she was in any other part of the episode, so I'm glad they they fit her in there. Uh, But you get the idea of it's uh, the elders gathered. So Ruthann is probably the oldest person, one of the oldest people. So glad to have her there. Uh, We get the ending of the film and then the title card, the end title that says The End and a a bunch of applause for Ed. And uh, that's the end of the episode. Now, this just in, I forgot to go back and see if there were some deleted scenes, bonus features for this episode. And I just noticed that there are some pretty juicy ones, or at least it looks like it. So we're going to watch those real fast. And Charles, I, I want us to talk about uh, the deleted scenes from this episode. All right, so we just watched the the deleted scenes. I can kind of see why maybe they were cut. They're pretty tragic. They're pretty <laughs> sad. But the first is um, pretty visually striking. It is a dream sequence in which we open on sort of, kind of feels like a stone temple or something. And it's got these like statues beside the door with... Uh, brazers of fire burning and Maurice steps out and he's dressed in his military uniform and there's lightning and thunder raging. It's nighttime. It seems very Shakespearean because the dialogue is uh, very Shakespearean. I tracked one of the lines that Maurice monologues. He says, mine honor is my life, both grow as one. Take honor from me, my life is done. Uh, That is from Richard II. But as the dream develops, I think it's like, I would believe it's like Romeo and Juliet because Maurice uh, walks over to find Duquan and Sune. Uh, they're dead. Like Sune has, I guess, stabbed herself. Duquan poisoned himself. Very, very Romeo and Juliet.
1: Yeah, they're trying to depict this as a standard Shakespearean play. And you can kind of see the themes of it because like, you know, it's got like the themes of like, oh, well, do I go against destiny? Do I go against my set of values right here? Her father was blah and I'm this. And like, yeah, now that they frame it in this manner, it's totally Shakespearean.
0: Yeah, and I think this scene has a little more staying power than the next scene that we're going to talk about. Like the next scene, I I have some some other reasons why they should cut this. Uh We do fine, obviously, in this episode without this Shakespearean scene. It is. You know, it's a dream sequence, which we always welcome. And it does seem like a a bit of an extravagance. Uh, I don't know if it was costly to film this or not, but, you know, they had to build some sort of set here on a soundstage. Uh, It's got very practical effects of the lightning and perhaps like some misty fog at night. And then even in like the shot as Maurice is approaching the dead uh, Duquan and Sune, if we see in Maurice's shot, his background I think it's like a matte painting of like that temple in the background. But of course, uh, there are like two flames going on in the background. So I think it's like a painting, but they kept like two flames, uh, glowing. Cause that is obviously more realistic than painted flames, which wouldn't move. But, uh, but I do think it's like a painted backdrop. It could just be the, the actual set in the backdrop, but, um, regardless, it's got nice depth and distance and it looks, uh, st- stylistic.
1: Yeah, definitely a stylistic scene, like you said. But I can understand why it's cut. The information that it's presenting doesn't necessarily have to be there. Yeah. But, yeah, for the next scene, I can totally see why that one was cut. Um, The next scene we're going to be seeing is with Ron, Eric, Maurice, Duquan, and his wife. are all eating dinner. Uh, I guess Maurice decided to take Ron and Eric up on their invitation for that open, open little party right there. They're drinking wine, eating lamb, and... Ron is giving off some like, I'm pretty sure it's like wildly sexist, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, Ron
0: is. Uh, that's what I was saying. Like, it was kind of hard for me to believe in this episode that Ron would have so little empathy with Duquan. Uh, but it's exaggerated a little in this scene because uh, it's clear that Duquan is like straight up not having a good time. Like, he has no appetite, <laughs> and uh, Ron is like trying to be like, "Come on, Duquan, in here, have some more wine." He says drinkity uppity, and then immediately he says, "And Maurice, simplify." Like you know, it's um, it's pretty broad, it, and we can see what's going on here. And I think he even says something. Uh, Ron says something to Sunae in Korean, which I would assume is just like, "Oh hey, give me some more of this," or like he's like kind of ordering her to uh, attend to him because, uh, well, what you're saying, Charles is like it's kind of sexist because he says like, "Yeah, this is how they do it," and. In Korea, like the women love to tend to the men and, and they love to fit in their place or whatever. By the way, Soon-Ai's, uh her eyes, uh, Maurice points it out. She's got red eyes, but uh, it's pretty obvious. It looks like she's been crying. She's like her eyes are puffy and red.
1: Yeah, it's obvious that she's been crying. And Maurice also keeps kind of thrust some gifts onto their hand. Like he says, he's going to fly them back in first class and give them some extra money so he can buy a car. Things that Duquan obviously do not want. He just wants his father's approval and for him to accept him for who he is. He doesn't really want the material possessions.
0: Yeah. This scene, as we said, I can understand how it got cut. It's pretty cruel. The previous scene, you know, it... it um it underlines Maurice's uh, struggle and his lamenting about his choice that he's, that he's made here. So uh, there you go. I, I think it was important to just point it out just because this, that dream sequence does look pretty cool. So if you have the DVDs, definitely check out the deleted scenes for this episode. But, um, but we, we can see why, why certain things might have been cut. Okay, Charles, now we've reached to the point in our podcast where we bring on our guest, Again, someone who has never seen the show or uh, never heard of it. This week, we've got my good friend, Andrew. He's a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. You can see his work in the documentary, The Power of Glove, about the Power Glove. It's available on Amazon Prime and at thepowerofglove.com. As well as, Andrew is uh, sort of responsible for some I'd say viral videos. He's uh, the person behind Full House Without Michelle, if you've ever seen that video, Uh, as well as uh, more recently, Robert E.T. Charles, have you seen Robert E.T.?
1: No, what is that?
0: (laughs) It's like, uh, I think it's like taken from probably like a Ken Burns documentary on Robert E. Lee or something. It's like some sort of PBS documentary or that kind of vibe. But instead of Robert E. Lee... Uh, it's E.T. as like a Civil War general. So he's been like edited into this this like PBS style documentary. <laughs> uh, you can see Robert E.T. and Full Else Without Michelle and other works by Andrew at redguts.com. But anyway, I was excited to have Andrew on and hear his thoughts on this episode.
3: All right, so this is the first episode of Northern Exposure that I've ever seen in its entirety. Right off the bat, I want to say that the theme song is very good. I love the Paul Simon Graceland-esque bass line and whatever instrument that is that goes wah, 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 wah. Couples well with the moose. Love the opening in general. That's probably my favorite takeaway from this entire thing. I'm assuming you've already discussed the three different storylines of this episode, so I'll just go ahead and run down and tell you what I think. I loved the... Korean War veteran father whose Korean son comes all the way back to America to ask his father's permission to marry a North Korean woman. Not only that, the daughter of a general from North Korea, so his sworn enemy. I kind of wish the whole show was about that storyline because I found it the most intriguing and engaging. I loved the main actor who played the Korean War veteran. He was my favorite character of the whole show. And I found myself genuinely engaged in his internal struggle as to whether to allow his son permission to marry the daughter of his sworn enemy. Love that dude. As for the Native American Edward Furlong, leather jacket, long hair character who wants to preserve his ancestral Tlingit language by dubbing a classic film into that language, I I, I liked that. I liked the discussion about dying languages. The character did strike me as a little strange in that he's very clever and perceptive in certain scenes and yet dim-witted in others. That's something I notice a lot in these types of shows is that a character can just be dumb when they need the character to be, but also very perceptive and smart. I mean, for example, when he's in the diner talking to the doctor and he says, "What, what do you mean languages can die? As if he didn't know that. And yet he is clever enough to dub an entire movie with a tape deck and, He's also very perceptive about directing emotions, and he's a huge film buff. I don't know. It, it, he strikes me as one of these weird characters that isn't really thought out completely. So those two storylines I could get behind. But uh, as for the pregnant b- I hated Shelley. I thought she was the worst character of this whole episode, and it's mainly because of the way she talks. I can't stand characters like this where every sentence that comes out of their mouth has some quirky new slang or some alliterative flair. She says things throughout the episode like, oh, you're a rugged LL beanstalk or my nips are as big as double drop chocolate cookies and my boobs, I'm busting out of my maxi maiden forms It's too cutesy. It's unbelievable. Nobody talks like this. It reminds me a lot of Gilmore Girls, where everybody is just a master of wordplay and quick wit, and yet no one in the entire show ever pauses to say, that was a good joke, or laugh. It feels like the writers are just jerking off, and I hate it. It's unbelievable. It makes the characters seem stilted. I hope she's not like that in the entirety of the show, because I found her extremely annoying. And as for the whole storyline of Holling not getting laid enough because he's so used to having a massive amount of sex, if there's one thing I hate in fiction, it's when Yankees have humble brags about how much sex they're used to having. It sounds like John Irving flexing. I don't like it. So yeah, two-thirds of this episode, to me, I found cool. I liked the young filmmaker struggling to preserve his heritage, and I liked the old marine battling demons. As for the pregnant... Shelly and blue bald hauling comedic relief. I thought it was awful. So I'll give this episode 2 out of 3 thumbs up.
0: All right, that was Andrew with his thoughts on this episode. I thought it was <laughs> quite hilarious how uh how he shifts into a more aggravated tone throughout like once he gets to the hated Shelly character. Um, but I want to start from the top cuz that's the order I took my notes in his uh <laughs> in his analysis, uh, his thoughts. Uh, Let's start from the beginning. The theme song, he says, is very good and reminds him of the whole Paul Simon, Graceland vibe, the vibe of that album. I think we've heard this comparison before. I want to say that uh, our friend Jordan Prince, the musician, I think maybe compared it to Graceland. If not, it was uh, definitely someone, maybe it was uh, Morgan Orion, or maybe I'm just misattributing this whole comparison to uh, one of our musician friends, guests. Uh, but I do feel like someone has compared it. I think it's the um, the whole like synthesized drum, uh, sort of the, the rhythmic aspect to that. And that instrument that uh, you enjoy, Andrew, uh, that instrument I think is a harmonica. Maybe it's a synthesized harmonica, but the lead melody I want to say is played on a harmonica.
1: Yeah, he also really, really enjoyed Maurice and his plotline. He really wishes that the entire episode was just devoted to his uh, troubles with his son.
0: Yeah, and we just talked about those deleted scenes, so there was definitely more that could have been uh, done with this storyline. And I guess, Charles, we also mentioned earlier how we were a little upset with the conclusion, in a way, of this storyline, so... I agree. I think I, I really liked this storyline as well. I think it could have used more screen time, but alas, they're, you know, they've they've got just their time slot. And uh I'm thankful that we got the Ed storyline and even the shelling and hauling one, sure. But um I guess if I had to rank it, I think I maybe like Ed's storyline the the most, but that's probably just because, you know, I, I work in film, but I want to point out to, I want to point out that the actor, Andrew, uh, that plays Maurice is Barry Corbin. Uh, he's also in, uh, I think he's in like Midnight Cowboy. Sorry, the film I was thinking of is Urban Cowboy. It was Barry Corbin's first film appearance. And he's in like the last scene of No Country for Old Men. Uh, he's in a few things and I think he's still alive. He's quite old now, but um, I don't think he, I don't know if he acts anymore.
1: Andrew's also pointing out that Ed could be both dimwitted and smart when needed. So it was like a, he described it as like a switch for when the writers needed him to be smart and when they needed him to be uh, not very perceptive right there. Yeah, I mean, I think that is like true to a degree, but I also think that like, that can be a characterization of characters. Like sometimes the people that you evaluate to be uh, not book smart can also be street smart. And sometimes those two intersections kind of collide. So you can't really tell the difference between them, but it's still kind of there. Like you can be really smart in one area and just, you know, really out of it in another one. I mean, you can see this all the time. You can talk to someone that's like really high in politics or like someone that's like a doctor or an engineer and they know their craft super well, but if you talk to them about like maybe something a little bit out of their uh purview, they're gonna be like, hang on now, like we have to pay taxes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess what Andrew is pointing out is it's like uh from a writer's perspective, conveniently dim-witted. Like it's convenient when uh Ed is dimwitted just for the purpose of story function. But I also think you're very right, Charles. And I think um In this show, particularly, like, the Native American characters can be elusively wise. Like, they're wise in one way and uh, just kind of funny and odd in other ways. And I think that plays into, uh, from Joel's perspective at least, like, how an outsider might view these people, these strange people, like, you know, even the audience who tunes in each week. These uh, strange Sicilians who are... uh, Incognizant of what bagels are. That was in the first episode. Like Ruthann doesn't know what a bagel is, but she runs a convenience store. But, you know, they, they, they have their own way of life, I guess. Andrew also points out uh, he uses the comparison of, um, well, he describes Ed as a Native American Edward Furlong with like leather jacket and all that. I don't think we've heard that comparison yet. I know we've gotten uh, like a Keanu Reeves type. For Ed uh, on a number of occasions, but I don't think we've heard Edward Furlong yet. It it fits, you know, if you're thinking like Terminator 2 kid, you know.
1: (laughs) And yeah, he says that he is not a fan of Shelly, her accent, and her words. Just whatever is coming out of her mouth, he is not a fan of. Uh, Yeah, Shelly does use a lot of quirky language, very hyper-specific to the 90s of what uh, late teenagers would use right there. Maybe it's just because I've become acclimated to it, but like I don't really mind it. But again, we're speaking with like uh, so many more episodes under our belt. If you were just watching this out of nowhere, I can see how this would be grinding on you.
0: Yeah, I loved how quickly he just like that just turned a switch on his like review. As soon as he hit Shelley, it just like started getting very heated. But I think we talked about this before the like Juno problem where, uh, you know, it's just very <laughs> quirky and wordy. And, you know, I think since the last time we talked about Juno, Charles, I still haven't rewatched it. But I will say, um, you know, it, was, it won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Uh, we talk about how, like, you know, writers, these these older writers try to characterize younger characters by just giving them some, like, hip slang and then uh, when you hear that, it's like, okay, kids don't really talk like that. Um, but uh, I guess in Juno's case, it worked out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess it was like a fine line between it because, like, I don't know. Sometimes kids do talk like that, though. Like, have yeah. you ever talked to like a ten-year-old a of today's time? Like, they really, they really are shouting out memes and yelling, like, <laughs> like a, Gen a bunch Z-er. of stuff on yeah. internet.
0: <laughs> Lots of. uh What's that like, um, have you seen that video where it's like a bunch of newscasters who are like, it's like a short bit they do about um, like testing week for college. And they're like, all right, I had to look it up because uh, I think it really is spectacular. It's uh, WTOL 11 in Toledo. Uh, it's a just really cringy video of this team of news anchors who are trying to pep up the, uh, the kids for like testing week. If you want to see some good cringe slang just like go to YouTube and type WTOL TPS testing and you'll find this video of uh, pretty cringe worthy news anchors. Have
1: you seen this Charles? No, I haven't seen it.
0: I think I might have to put that put the sound clip of that at the end of this episode, but I just imagine like this that's what Shelley would be if it, this show came out in 2021. <laughs> Uh what did you think about his uh Gilmore Girls dig? Charles, I know you're a big fan of Gilmore Girls.
1: Uh I think that like oftentimes when you're creating uh fiction, like your characters don't have to be hyper realistic if that is the world in which you want them to live in. So like oftentimes I hear criticism of Sorkin characters being like, "Oh, they're always saying like uh really off the cuff perfect remarks or like how could they have such knowledge of such intricate things?" And it's like, well, it is like a work of fiction. These are just like the basically <laughs> mouthpieces in which he wants them to say. I think it's mostly important to see how like the plot progresses from there. I, I can understand why someone would dislike it. I'm not trying to say like everyone should like it. Like I understand like if that is not your cup of tea, yeah, that's fine. So,
0: so for you, it's like a suspension of disbelief in some way. Like you have to be like, okay, this is more of a stylized dialogue or...
1: Yeah, like I understand I'm watching uh like characters in this imaginary world and all the people who are like this. In a way, when I watch Northern Exposure, I'm not like totally flipped out whenever Ruth Ann brings up some very obscure trivia about 1870s Russia or Ed knows all of these films. You know all that stuff. Like I just know that like the townsfolk of Sicily just uh just are these eccentric fellas. I don't really question it that much. I guess this is my way of like a lot of things. Like I'm very calm whenever I watch like other mediums, uh, (laughs) other stuff and like a a bunch of crazy things go by. I never really sit down and say like, oh, that's like unrealistic. Like (laughs) This character's wouldn't like that at all. Like I kind of just go with the flow.
0: Yeah, it's like when you approach a show, when you press play, you're entering a new environment and it could follow different rules. But uh, this all Andrew's review kind of... uh, comes to a head here at the end where he's uh, also, I should say, um, Andrew is also from the South. And I thought it was funny how he's like, I hate it when in a TV show, Yankees are bragging about how much sex they have. It feels like John Irving flexing. And I don't think I've read a whole lot of John Irving. I think uh, we had to read one of his novels in school, but I'm guessing John Irving is from the North. I feel like he's like a... Uh, New England or like you know northeastern uh, author. I could be wrong, but perhaps he writes about having sex a lot or something.
1: <laughs> you would know him probably from the world according to Garp. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that and uh, we had to read a prayer for Owen Meany, which was, hey, me uh, too. Yeah, yeah. was uh, adapted <laughs> into a film, Simon Birch. But ultimately, I think Andrew gives. He says he gives the episode two out of three, uh, which I think is a pretty good, pretty good score. I guess if well, we had to. He- Oh, go ahead. He
1: gives a two out of three thumbs, and we only have two thumbs, so I think he meant that as a joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I did not catch that. All right, well then that's the maximum rating, because if you only have two, otherwise that's a that's a 0.66. That's kind of like what is it like a high like a D or a C? That that's a. That's
1: like a that, D. Yeah, right? that's a D. Regular D, not <laughs> even like really a D, D plus. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm going to assume that he wanted to mean uh, 100%. Two thumbs, that's all you got. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Andrew, for taking the time of watching this episode uh, and recording your thoughts and sharing those with us. Uh, I was really, I really started laughing uh, towards the end there uh, and really appreciated your perspective. I want to, before Charles, before we sign off, I just got a response to my uh, post in the R Korean subreddit asking for uh, help with translating. I know I already gave you the Google Translate, but um, here's what I got from user HS Jun. Now this is, uh, once again, this is uh, Paksune's um farewell address to Maurice. She says to him, I sincerely thank you. I do realize how hard a decision you've made. Your son, I'll take great care of. I surely will. Please stay healthy. So a little bit at the end, I, I don't think we got from Google Translate. Uh, please stay healthy. But um, yeah. I also want to say thanks to Shelly TX. She shared a past post from the Facebook group Club NX in which someone apparently had asked their Korean neighbor to translate the scene. Their translation? Thank you. I know this was a very difficult decision for you. I will be very good to your son. So thanks again, Shelly TX. Well, okay, Charles, let's sign off. So next week, we're going to be coming back to talk about The season finale, season four, we've made it. It is the 25th episode in season four, the longest season of Northern Exposure. And the episode is called Old Tree. Do you have any guesses to uh, what this episode could be about? Old
1: Tree, I'm going to guess that has to do with like the lineage of the town. So really familiar to the season three finale of Sicily. And Old Tree brings up imagery of something that's been here for a long time and is continuing to grow uh, it's sinking its roots throughout the town. So I'm going to go with that.
0: All right. Well, we'll be talking about that next week. Charles, thanks for podding.
1: All right. I'll see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Andrew for being our guest analyst. If you like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.
0: Good morning, TPS students.
1: It is testing week and it's time to slay all day. Yeet! Stay woke beyond fleek. And get that Gucci breakfast. Goals. Say bye, Felicia, to that testing stress. Weather's going to be turnt, right, Chris?
3: Yes. Toledo weather going to be V-lit during testing week. A hundo P chance of success. You've got this, kids. Steve, how about that traffic? Are we looking ok?
1: Better than okrrr? <laughs> We're talking turnt. FOMO won't be an issue. No traffic problems around any TPS schools to keep you from taking those tests. So get a good night's sleep, do your best, in fact, be extra, extra. We here at WTOL are V proud of you.
0: Good Good luck luck on your test, test, TPS TPS
1: students. students.